Nature recycles everything. Humans have created the concept of waste. Uh, mm -hmm. Say that again. Say that again. Nature recycles everything. Everything that is no longer needed by one species becomes a source or a fills a need for another species in these dynamic um, interrelationships between species within ecosystems. So a rotting log becomes food for decomposer species. It becomes structure for um, animals to uh, use for shelter. It becomes structure for um, uh, fungal networks to spread their mycelium through and both decompose and also use that space to communicate through the fungal network. Everything that dies becomes food or structure for something else, sometimes both. This is Epic Ordinary Lives Podcast. Welcome to episode 38 of Epic Ordinary Lives, the podcast that believes in the power of story. Story both to improve our own lives when we're telling our own stories along with the ability to help other people, both because we can learn from one another, we can learn specifically from challenges, as well as from great joys and the most pivotal experiences of our lives. And therein lies the goal of this podcast, to use the power of hearing other people's origin stories or really those, those moments that changed everything for them, whether that's changing a direction or finally pursuing something that they love. This week, I am with Emily Stutzman, who is a friend of many years and is the director of undergraduate programs, the Institute for Sustainable Practice at Lipscomb University. So Emily has lived a very interesting and varied path on her way to what she does now. She got her MS in rural sociology and her PhD in forestry. And we really start at the beginning all the way back when she was 15 years old in Future Farmers of America, FFA, which growing up in the South, I had already uh, been aware of the, the existence of that organization, all the way to working on a farm and an early learning opportunity in college where she actually was a participant in helping a calf be born who was stuck in the birthing process, uh, all the way to sharing her journey doing research in Uganda, and ultimately how she found herself in this position where she is literally teaching undergraduate students how they can make their lives more sustainable. We define the term, and we ultimately uh, talk in very practical terms about what that really means and and how we can do it in our own lives and particularly how we can do it where it does not feel as though we are guilting ourselves into a behavior that we should be taking part in. I always like to say, it, does it feel like I should be eating my broccoli feels like when you were a kid, if, if you did not like broccoli, which was my reality, I do like broccoli now, by the way, and you, you knew that you needed to eat it because it was, quote-unquote, good for you. Well, that's what's so powerful about this conversation. And this is actually going to be a two-part conversation. Uh, and, and in it, we're going to, in the first part, really hear about her journey and her path, her origin story. And then in part two, we're going to lean more into how you can practically make 
your life more sustainable in a joyful manner, in a manner that not only adds perhaps greater intentionality to your day-to-day life, but also I think it just puts us in a place where we can care more for the things that we do have rather than always replacing things or getting new things. So I don't want to spoil anything. I really loved this conversation. And I I think it's particularly when you listen to both parts, this is a great blend of a narrative story, great information, because she's taught this stuff and studied it for so long. But this is also a great blend of vulnerability, as you will hear, particularly in part two, because she gets very real about uh, her own personal challenges and how they have contributed to where she is today. And it's also, again, to use that word, it's practical. I left this conversation with actions I could take that I, I found fun. I found the idea of fun and I found the goal of living a more sustainable life, something that I'm actually excited about. A far cry from something I should be doing, instead something that I can't wait to do. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Emily Stutzman on Epic Ordinary Lives. So it is a gray Sunday morning, the first Sunday morning in 2020. Yes, it's the first Sunday morning in 2021, not 2020. And I am sitting with Emily Stutzman, and you and I have been friends for actually a bunch of years now. You were actually at my wedding, and I met you because of Kelly, because of my wife. That's right. So I knew Kelly when she worked with me at Lipscomb. And uh, I actually remember I had we had several lunches when she was like first starting to get to know you and communicate with you and like learn your real name and <laughs> all kind of fun <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Yeah, because we we did online dating and you know, early on you're looking at a username. That's exactly right. Yep. So I've been around for the whole Aaron story. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't, you know, that, that's really funny. I, I guess I did. I, I looked back and I realized that timeline correlates, but, uh, that is really cool. Well, anyway, I, I have always in knowing you, uh, and in going, the three of us went to a documentary about fungi and, <laughs> I, I've always known that you have this background in sustainability, and I've always wanted to know more. I've always been curious about your specific path. And the place I want to start with this is, is the awareness that this, this is something that you have in some way loved for a very long time. Because when I was doing research for this interview... I found a photo of you at age 15 that I'm looking at right now in, is it a Ocala National Forest? Uh-huh, Ocala. So you were 15 years old at a forestry camp. How far back does this go? How far back does forestry, sustainability, etc.? Yeah, so pretty far back. So I've always loved trees. I loved climbing trees as a child. Um, I grew up in Florida and the, the, like the natural environment in Florida is just such a poignant part of your life as a child because it poses so many dangers. (laughs) So, (laughs) so children are taught, you know, don't go near the water without an adult because there might be alligators. In fact, you should assume that at any natural body of water in Florida, there are alligators. Um, at we are, I also grew up near the, so Tampa is the lightning strike capital of the world. You are much more likely to get struck by lightning in Florida than you are to be bitten by a shark. What? Yep. So we were very, and the, and the storms come up really quickly. So again, as children, we're taught, you know, watch the sky when you hear that thunder. And, you know, if you see any bolt of lightning, um, get away from tall trees, come inside, certainly get out of the swimming pool, get out of the water. Um, 
And so the, the natural environment is, as, as well as certainly going to the beach and um, finding jellyfish and crabs and seashells and um, everything along the, uh, you know, along the shore. The natural environment is just such a part of growing up here. And it is, it is wild in terms of, uh, you know, giant invasive boa constrictors in the Everglades, um, little lizards that, you know, again, to get more, a little more closer to home, right? Like lizards that, um, like find their way into your house and you have to catch them and try to get them out. And, um, it's just a, it's, you know, because it's so hot and there's so much water, um, pretty much the two drivers of, uh, productivity or, um, plant growth, meaning like the productivity being the way that plants transform sunlight, carbon dioxide, and water through the process of photosynthesis into um, stored energy, uh, mm. sugars and carbohydrates. Uh, that is the base of any food pyramid or any, um, any trophic or you know, energy pyramid as energy moves through feeding, eating systems. Mm. So, um, so because we are so hot and so wet, um, there's just a whole lot of life here that's surrounding us, you know, surrounding me in my childhood all the time. Um, and I, but at the same time, I, uh, did a bunch of other stuff, right? Like kids do. And I played soccer. And so the, the way that agriculture really started for me. So my dad grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania. He hated it. He left it, moved to Florida, um, worked in a completely different industry and uh and I've actually never even seen that particular farm it's still in his family but I was interested in going to a different high school than the one that my neighborhood was zoned for it was a school that had a better soccer team frankly and I and it it, um it was a newer school and you know had, had kind of a good reputation for a public school which in, in my area in Florida, everybody goes to public schools. Um, so I had to say that I wanted to study something that only that school offered in order to get this assignment to go to that school yeah. outside of my neighborhood. And so I said that I wanted to study agriculture, which is what Durant High School had that Bloomingdale High School didn't have. So I, uh, you know, I, I talked about how much I loved um, being outside and working um, outside, but I'd never, you know, done anything with that. It was just a little essay I wrote in eighth grade. And so I ended up in this agriculture class and it was fascinating. And we were learning to drive tractors and I was meeting kids who had totally grown up on farms their whole lives. And um, I was visiting them at home and, you know, meeting their parents who, um, you know, three generations of strawberry farmers and citrus growers and um, horticulture farmers, like uh, growers, like um, growing nursery plants that get shipped all mm -hmm. over the world. I mean, over the country to uh, garden centers and Lowe's and Home Depot and things. And, and forestry was part of that. So forestry is the, is the intentional scientific management of trees. And what that translates to in most of the South and Southeastern United States is, is trees as a crop. Right, so trees that are planted with the intention of harvesting them later for um, lumber, uh, pulp to make paper, and you know all, all the things that we use use wood for. Um, those trees are the, that are being harvested are not uh, are not being cut down. Um, certainly not virgin timber that's never been cut. It's uh, it's effectively farmed timber. Um, and in many places across the southeast, it's timber that's farmed on land that was previously in row crop agriculture, meaning it was previously growing uh, cotton or um, mostly cotton, actually, um, or, you know, corn or soybeans or something else in the past. So, uh, so FFA is this uh, future farm, it stands for what it used to be Future Farmers of America, they changed the name to just be FFA. Um, and so that was part of the, the agriculture curriculum. So mm -hmm. uh, if you ever uh, 
Did you have this at your high school with like the blue corduroy jackets? Uh, we did have, I mean, especially in Tennessee, we did have, I mean, I knew the acronym as soon as I saw it, at least I assumed it was future farmers of America, but I, yeah, yeah. blue corduroy jacket. Yeah. So like, like I wore, you know, on special days, I'd wear my blue corduroy jacket and this, um, this official dress, uh, for like doing FFA events. It was part of the whole thing. Um, it was an official FFA, uh, jacket you're describing like yeah. a letter jacket or something like that similar do you want to see it it's right here yeah okay hold on 100 percent. okay so here's my ffa jacket it's got my name on it on this side you put your pins for when you're on the vegetable team and the forestry team and when you're an officer you get a special pin um, emblem on the other side on the back it says uh, Florida, my state, and then the name of my chapter, my um, my high school chapters. JF Saint. You wear this you know, when you go do contests, and um, and it's a lot of contests. And it's a bunch of like. I didn't have my ears on. Could you hear any of that? Yeah, it was great. I okay. maybe we can include a photo of that for uh, for folks that are listening. I mean, yeah. So you wear this when you're you know you're going around and you know and I went all over the state and I met people and I actually went to D.C. Um, once and to the national convention at Louisville. So it was this. It was like a club. It was like a sport almost, except mm -hmm. it was a bunch of brain bowl um, contests. So you'd study one thing for you know a season effectively, and then you'd go to these contests. And if you won, then you would move up. So um, I was on the forestry team. I was on the vegetable team. I was on the soil judging team, which meant that you like basically learned a bunch of science and, uh, and then like practiced with your teacher at your ag teacher and then went to competitions and comp you know, competed against other schools. So the forestry thing was really fun, but I didn't realize at the time that there were careers in forestry besides like growing timber and not being from a forestry family that was either landowners or, um, you know, a bunch of folks in very rural communities who make land management decisions, uh, either, you know, as consultants or contractors or, um, like working for a timber company, like Warehouser or something. Um, I didn't really see a future for myself with that uh, at the time. And that was just because I didn't know all their, like all of the different ways that people apply forestry. But I knew I liked it. And I, um, so it was kind of like a back burner thing for a while. And then I went to college and my college was near, was in Arkansas. And um, Heifer International is a international um, non-governmental organization that does agriculture development and community development. If you've ever um, been the recipient of someone giving you a cow or a flock of chickens and sending you a card in the mail that says like, congratulations, you got a cow that now is with a family in, right. El Salvador or um, Kenya or something um, and providing milk and uh, meat and uh, muscle power to help help uh, small-scale subsistence farmers meet their uh, meet their family food needs and uh, and generate extra income things like that so I worked for this organization at, at their educational farm um, right out of college. It was a volunteer position. It was the best hands-on experience I could have gotten in sustainability. I learned more about um, the actual practice of subsistence agriculture there than, um, than I certainly had in FFA, which is much more industrially based mm -hmm. agriculture. Um, I, I got to pull a calf. There was a, a cow that was having a baby and the calf was stuck it was not Whoa. being born it was one of the most incredible certainly spiritual experiences um of my life so i was literally like the vet was there um and uh, i and just i was like watching this whole 
birthing process not going well. And, uh, you know, the vet said, we're going to need to pull this calf. And so I got to participate in that, like hands inside, finding hooves, you know, the calf is coming out hooves, like front hooves and head first, finding hooves, um, attaching some chains and like helping to like pull this calf out of, um, out of its mother. It was incredible. Was this part of a class that you were just like, what was the context for you being in that room? So I was on this farm. And so my job at the time was to give tours to school kids and to, you know, church groups would come or like different, you know, Boy Scout troops would come and do a day at this educational farm. Mm. And, uh, but I lived there too with all the other volunteers or probably 15 of us uh, at the time, just make like just running this place. And so I had friends who worked in the livestock area. Um, so they would, you know, I would, when I wasn't giving field trips again, which is just a small part of the day, um, I would help in the vegetable gardens or I would uh, be in the greenhouses, like moving transplants and um, starting like transplant beds and things or, or my livestock friends who were, uh, you know, taking care of the, the sheep and um, that were lambing, like having lambs at that time. Um, a bunch of baby goats had been born. And so I was really like just, you know, on this beautiful hillside in central Arkansas um, as the sun went down watching this, this cow that had been in labor for hours um, and had not been progressing. Um, they just, you know, the, the vet just kind of pulled me in. There was, you know, three or four of us watching um, for this to happen. And you had no idea that in that moment you would be the one asked to assist not at all not at all not i just all. yeah and you said it was like a spiritual experience do you, I, I know that this is like sort of a weird place to linger but i do think that this is an incredibly poignant moment for anybody even us listening that have never birthed a birthed a calf before right when you say it was like a spiritual experience you know what what was that experience for you it was first off it was large and it was um, you know, cows are big animals. And if you're, when you're like right up with them, you, I felt very small in comparison to this large animal. Um, and just the, uh, the intensity and the focus of this, this cow that had been in labor, um, for hours again, like she was tired. She was like panting and hot and there was like heat coming off of her body and um but also knowing that you know and the vet explaining that um that this this calf can't stay where it is right like it has to come out it cannot you know both of them will die if mm. if people don't intervene in this process um which goes to the way that humans have already intervened in the lives of domesticated animals by breeding them for desirable traits for humans, not at all desirable traits for uh, wild ruminants, uh, you know, to be ruminants being like the type of the type of animal that cows are, that they eat grass and they turn it, they have multiple chambers in their stomachs to turn it into um, meat for, for people. Right. So, mm. so we have already intervened in such a way that many, many cows bodies and bone structure and the desirable traits of large calves, um, make it difficult for those, 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 you know, those births to be natural all the time. Right. So mm. while there were certain, certainly, you know, certainly it was a natural process, um, it was one by virtue of breeding that humans had already intervened in so much that, um, that humans needed to also assist in help and to, you know, to, to preserve that life of the mother and, uh, you know, the cow and the calf. So, um, 
So just the feeling of smallness, but also the feeling of the t- like the time bound sense that this is urgent. This, yeah. you know, this needs to happen. And like this baby, like this calf needs to get out in the next um, hour or so for, for them to have a, a good shot at the cow that, I mean, the calf then being able to stand and then calf or the, the mother being able to, uh, um, you know, the calf to be able to feed, um, yeah. from the mother. So there's just, it was, it was just really poignant and also like a whole body experience too. Right. So like, like I was giving it everything I had, like all of my pulling strength. Um, and also just the experience of like, like placing your body inside the body of another living being in order to find a third body that's never seen daylight (laughs) to assist that body into like coming into the, um, the world. Yeah. (laughs) That's incredible. I mean, like literally you are the doorway you are, you are creating the entry into life into the, that, that, that is profound. And this is what farmers do, right? So people who have cows and most of the cows, if you live in the Southeast and you drive by a cow pasture, what you are seeing are, is a herd of female cows whose purpose is to have a calf every year. And the people who manage those, um, you know, they're those, those farmers and, you know, cattlemen and cattle women regularly pull calves. Um, sometimes with tractors, sometimes like, like it's a, it's a whole, um, it's a whole experience. And it also just kind of opened me up, you know, and also I called my dad afterwards. I was like, dad, you'll never guess what just happened. And and he had done that 15 times growing up. Um, so it was a connection to him that I hadn't had before. And I knew he had calves, but I didn't know what that meant or what that felt like, um, to have that experience. And now having friends who, um, have calves and I mean who have cows and hearing about them talk about you know so what'd you do yesterday oh I pulled a calf (laughs) um it's it is magnificent and that is it's also a part of our food system right so that calf then went on to um you know be with its mother until it got to a size in order to wean um and to live only off of uh grain and so then it was sold as a calf to a feedlot somewhere in the Midwest, likely, mm-hmm. where it would live in um, close confinement with many other calves until it grew in, in eating corn and soy, uh, until it grew to a size enough to be, um, to be slaughtered for, for mm-hmm. a human consumption of, uh, of beef. So it was just this incredibly um, poignant window into, into the life of beings that are, that are strongly linked to mine as both a, um, a member of the human population and as someone who eats beef. So that was a hugely important, part of your journey and you, if you can take us back to uh your your origin story you're you're working on the farm take us yeah back. and then the question was okay how do I do this professionally right so I'm in a volunteer mm-hmm. position where I get housing and uh food and a little like living stipend but I probably need insurance at some point and uh to you know actually like make a little bit more than this um so like most people of <laughs> like most millennials, my first question was, where do I go to grad school? And so, so I found a, a program at Auburn University in rural sociology, which I thought, oh, that's perfect. It's people and land and natural resources and mm-hmm. agriculture. It's within the College of Agriculture at Auburn. And uh, so I did that. And what that looked like was, um, you know, when we're solving when we're solving agricultural problems or 
in like improving natural resource management um, that inevitably involves people and alongside science and technology and economics. So what would happen was there'd be a, you know, there'd be a project and there'd be a, a group of team members on this project and there'd be likely a, uh, you know, depending on what it was. So I was on a project with fish farming in Uganda. So cooperative fish farming, meaning like um, groups that come together for the purpose of sharing information and technology and, um, and supporting each other and making each other like better fish farmers. So farming fish for as a crop, as opposed to fishing for wild fish in the ocean. So aquaculture is the farming of fish. Um, so when you read that your, you know, your catfish was farmed, that means that it was grown in a pond, probably in West Alabama or Mississippi and, uh, and then harvested uh, for that purpose. It wasn't caught in a river somewhere. So I was on the project. There was an agricultural engineer um, who was, who specialized in pond construction and like pond engineering, um, a, a fish disease specialist and a uh, fish nutritionist and all these various particular like technical scientists. Very niche. Exactly. And then the, and then I was the rural sociologist on the team, um, which involved the translation of this science understanding um, and also understanding where the people were, um, were coming from in their fish farming journey um, and how these, how these cooperative groups were working or not working well together. So that's the, um, that was my master's project, which took me to Uganda for six weeks and was a um, really educational and uh, exciting experience. And then, um, well, hang, hang on a second. Like yeah. that, that's, that's incredible. Had you, had you ever traveled out of the States before at that, at that moment? I had, I'd studied abroad in Greece. I'd, uh, I'd been on a trip, a mission trip to Honduras and I'd been on a, um, a mission trip to Kenya previously. So they were, those were all like church related service trips. And, uh, this was the first one that I was really like, okay, like I have a set of responsibilities and there's, you know, there's a grant hmm. that I have to write the report for. And so I am responsible for getting, um, you know, getting these objectives met. Um, so it made it a little different for certainly than those other trips. It was also, I was on my own. Um, my professor, my rural sociology professor had gone over there with me. Um, but I was 20, 24 maybe. And, um, you know, we, we did this, like this fish farmer conference together. And then he was like, okay, <laughs> see you in, <laughs> see you in six weeks <laughs> yeah, or five weeks, I guess at that point. So I just got all my objectives done and, um, had, I had great support in country. I had a, um, several aquaculture scientists, um, who were part of the grant and on the team. Um, but you know, they went home at night to their, <laughs> to their families and their people. And, um, it was a, it was a great adventure. I mean, it's like, you're, you're, you're like a, a secret, like you're a sociological secret agent. Like, nah. you know what I mean? Like, no, I mean, you have a mission, you have objectives and you're 24. Yeah. And it, it, did you find yourself at any point like shaking your head going like I'm in Uganda like conducting research I'm 24. Yes. So in all of the preparation for that trip I never thought that. I thought like oh this is awesome. And then there were a couple moments when I was realizing like oh this could go really badly. And <laughs> uh, like like irredeemably badly. Um I found for example I found myself in a uh, in the home of a corrupt local politician, very near the the border with the Democratic Republic of the Congo, mm. and so uh, political situation in you know 2010 in the DRC was terrible. Um, it's not great now, but uh, 
I, you know, I was there, I, I had a driver, but I mean, nobody would have heard me scream <laughs> if anything had gone bad. Um, and again, like this, this local politician was, um, was involved. He had his, his fingers in a lot of pots, including the fish farming one, um, which is probably the most wholesome of all of his uh, economic endeavors. <laughs> wow. But I got out of there and uh, got what I needed and went to a, a national park and saw hippos afterwards. Wait. So it all ended well. In, in Uganda or? In Uganda, yeah. A national park and saw hippos. Mm -hmm. Give us one insight about hippos. They graze all night. They get out of the water at night, come onto land and eat literally a ton of vegetation a piece. Huh. That's how they're so big. You know, I, I, I've never asked myself that question. These gargantuan creatures that can literally kill you by like backing into you without even knowing. Mm -hmm. And you see them splashing around in the water and, you know, in, in an unnatural environment, you see folks throwing like a giant watermelons their way, but they, they're, they're, they're grazers. I, yep. I had no idea. Check out their teeth. They're made for chomping, not for <laughs> ripping or. Hungry, hungry hippos. That's right. Just like the Mattel game or whatever. So, so you have this hugely pivotal experience that you survive. I, it seems as though the research went it went great. But I also said, like, hmm, I don't think I want to work internationally. Maybe there's <laughs> agricultural activity going on in the United States. <laughs> uh, so it took me back to forestry, and. Um, so I got on with a fantastic professor at Auburn who um, specializes in non-timber forest products. So timber is the main product of, you know, the economic driver of forestry. Um, but there are lots of things that people can do and um, sell to, to make money from their forest land, um, including Cows. So it brought me back to cows. So silvopasture is the intentional combination of timber, forage, and livestock. And uh, that was what my dissertation was about. So um, looking at why people practice silvopasture, what would it take for more people to practice silvopasture, um, what are the ecological, like how do people understand the ecological benefits of forest, of uh, silvopasture, and what does that mean for um, the forest lands of the uh, southeast, of which 85% of the forests in the southeast are managed by either individuals or uh, like corporations. So what people do with their forest land, um, east of the Mississippi especially, really matters for all of us, for air quality, for water quality, for um, food supply. Silvopasture. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing this word in some of your work, but it, um, what is that again? Yeah, so I, I used to not try to delve too deeply into it with most people until uh, Paul Hawken came out with the, this project, this big, like it was like a big sustainability, uh, you know, made a lot of waves in the sustainability world because he was the first to really answer what would it take to reverse climate change Hmm. He did this project called the Drawdown Project, and uh, it has a great website, great set of scholars behind it. And so <laughs> Silvopasture was number nine in his top 100 strategies to, to reverse climate change on the planet. It has, in wow. terms of like the science, like Silvopasture change it, like sequesters carbon in the soil, and uh and adds trees to the landscape and turns uh you've probably heard that cattle production um is a climate driver and it uh, and silvopasture really re really reverses that pattern wow so etymologically Looking at the word, I don't, or hearing the word, I'm not looking at it right now, but I'm trying to look yeah. at it in my mind. I don't immediately. 
Yeah. So Silva or Silvo is uh, the Latin root for tree. So mm. the name Sylvia, um, silviculture is the science. I took a class in silviculture, which is the science of, um, of managing trees. Um, so that's the, that's the, it's basically a combination of Silvo um, or Silva and, and the word pasture. So it's combining trees and pasture on the same mm. site. Mm. Which there's a lot of cultural resistance to. Um, and f- folks have really tried for the last 200 years to get the trees out of their pasture um, and to really see agricultural systems and forestry, uh, for agricultural land and forestry land as distinct. And silvopasture, along with a host of other um, agroforestry practices, um, bring those two together so that there's both agriculture and forestry happening on the same site. It's like a de-siloing. Exactly. Mm. Yep. So returning to your journey, uh, take us back to the story. You, so, well, you, so, so Silvo pasture was what you ultimately studied as part of your dissertation. dissertation. So that was my, yeah. So that was my PhD. Um, in the School of Forestry and Wildlife Sciences at Auburn. Um, And midway through my degree, I saw this job posting at Lipscomb and I thought, hmm, I'm already, I'm starting to put together some of my uh, application materials. Let me just send this off and see how it goes. And they loved me. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I don't know what they were thinking hiring me. I hadn't finished my dissertation yet. Um, and so I start, came up here and started directing a, uh, graduate program and an undergraduate program. And now I'm just doing the undergrad program, which is a, it's a positive, uh, positive switch. That's really where my heart is. And, um, yeah, so now I'm, I'm, uh, I may have made a career out of it. Well, that's an interesting uh, place to pause for a second is is that you you haven't even finished your research and you are looking at where you're going to go with this. Like, how are you going to make a career? How are you going to uh, transcend that probably beautiful experience living on that farm that is not going to ultimately pay enough to, to live or have health insurance? So, but how did you, I mean, had you applied to a lot of positions? Had, you know, but I, the, the reason I'm going here is because some folks listening may wish for a leap into a certain path. Yeah. And you got hired or at least selected before you'd even finished your research. Right. So I'm going to be honest about this. I got this job because I am a very, I got this particular job because I'm a very particular person. Hmm. Um, so Lipscomb is a part of a very specific small denomination of Christianity um, churches of Christ. And that was my, that was my background. That was how I'd been raised. Um, That was, you know, the church that I'm a part of now is a church of Christ um, has always been so. And um, um, so basically, you know, finding a, finding a church of Christ uh, sustainability young, uh, like young graduate was pretty much a, um, I I was, it was a small pool. In fact, I can't name anybody else in the (laughs) church of Christ sustainability, uh, world who's looking for a job. Um, there's, you know, I can probably name three globally. Um, there might be more that I haven't met yet, but probably not because we all go to the same conferences. That, but I mean, that just speaks to, uh, the value of a niche. Yeah. Some sometimes folks can be afraid to be too uh, in a niche, but wow, this like this really served served you well in this case. So, so now you are the director of undergraduate programs at the Institute of Sustainable Practice at Lipscomb University. Right. And I, I was while researching for this interview, I found a presentation that you did for the. Tennessee Women in Green 
Yeah. Which looks like an incredible organization. I I I had heard of them uh just uh from the sidelines, but I'm I'm curious about them, but I I was looking at your presentation and part of what it did was showed some of the classes or, or excuse me, some of the lessons that are taught in an undergraduate class on sustainability. And I found myself going, man, I wish that I had had like a class with this amount of practical knowledge. And it made me want to go into this topic with you who has this like very specific background. I want to go into sustainability in general. Awesome. Yeah. So First, let me say Tennessee Women in Green is a fantastic organization. Some of the most inspiring rooms I've been in have been uh, presentations and, um, and meetings with this group. And they're in Nashville. Um, with COVID, they're, they're, you know, they're streaming things online and everything. But mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a really, really fantastic group of women who are supporting other women doing sustainability work. Um, and one of the cool things about this program is that I've pretty much gotten to design the curriculum and I, um, which was a big responsibility and also really fun. Uh, and so when I was putting, so I was starting, trying to start from where students come to sustainability, right? So like if you are a, high schooler, you might've had, I mean, you certainly had biology and you had chemistry and you had, you know, these basic science classes and then you, um, but you're hearing other things, right? Like, so you're learning about global warming. You're learning about, um, the plastic pollution problem in the, um, you know, the great Pacific garbage patch. And you're learning about, um, and, and you're seeing people, especially like Instagram kind of folks or like, you know, people living in tiny homes and living, uh, you know, living a zero waste lifestyle. And you're, and so I'm, st I was starting from like those kinds of interesting, uh, inroads to, you know, what's this about? What's behind that? Um, and I based this course around, uh, a, the framework that was, pro um, popularized in the sustainability world by a woman named Annie Leonard, and uh, she created this story of stuff project. So the story of stuff is all about um, consumption uh, and consumerism and, um, and seeing the materials economy, how stuff moves from, you know, cause matter can neither be created nor destroyed. Energy can't either. Right. So everything that we have existed um, in some other form, uh, every, every, all of the stuff that we have existed in some other form. So we're looking from the process from extraction, production, distribution, consumption, and disposal. And that five-step process, extraction, production, distribution, consumption, and disposal, is called the materials economy. And you would learn that in any supply chain class, in any, um, you know, a lot of business classes um, focus on this materials economy, how stuff moves through those five stages. But it's a linear system, right? It starts on one end of extraction and it ends at the other with disposal. So it's got a line, it's a linear system. Um, and since we know that matter can neither be created nor destroyed, um, we know that in a linear system cannot exist on a finite planet indefinitely. Mm. We have a finite planet. There is only so much stuff. There's only so much matter on the planet. And there is only so much energy, except we have one source of energy coming into our planetary system. It's a closed system for matter, right? We can talk about asteroids. We can talk about space, mm. you know, mm -hmm. rocketing, um, rocketing junk into space. Um, but for all practical purposes. We are a closed system for matter and there is one new source of energy coming in and that's energy from the sun. So solar energy from the sun um, and plants do an incredible job of transforming solar energy into energy that um, all other life forms depend on. All other life forms depend on, uh, depend on the 
carbohydrates and sugars that plants produce through the process of photosynthesis. <clears throat> so the whole class is about looking at that materials economy as it currently exists, and then looking at also uh, where are their problems and how can that linear system be turned into a circular system so that nothing is, um, is ever really wasted. There's never really um, like true uh, waste where everything is indefinitely perpetually recycled. Yeah. So, uh, well, the linear system, just to make sure I'm tracking with you, like I see that as a dead end. Yeah. Like that, that, uh, materials stuff is acquired to create yep. other stuff and ultimately that stuff does not have any semblance of a connection to anything else once it hits that last that dead end yeah so what that dead end looks like in you know today is a landfill mm. or it also looks like stuff in the wrong place so like trash in the ocean or you know um pollution in the soil or pollution in the air and that's that's not great right so we want to move that to uh, so we want healthy healthy natural cycling systems mm. and no landfill yeah you know i can't help but immediately think of this on a human uh, microcosm maybe of like uh, you, you know when you've got an ant or somebody and I'm not uh, by the way if any of my ants are listening I'm not talking about you specifically but uh, <laughs> but but I do have like a, a familial awareness of like acquiring so much stuff that you have like you know like, man I need a bigger closet and you get a bigger oh, yeah. closet and in that closet just goes the very things that you, you know, you've got to have a place for them. And that place that like, that's the landfill of the house is what it is. Yeah. And that reduces our well-being, certainly. Um, and, and that's one of the things that we talk about is this, the rise in consumerism in the United States um, has happened relatively recently within the last couple of generations. Uh, we had this post, we had this uh, World War II boom of production. And through World War II, the United States was an incredibly productive, uh, in terms of like making stuff country. And you can probably look back in your family at people, you know, two or three generations ago who made their living by making stuff. My grandmother, um, well, my grandparents on one side were farmers, so they were definitely making stuff and then uh, making food. And then um, my grandmother on my mother's side worked in garment factories her whole life. She graduated from high school, went to work in garment factories, was very talented um, and, uh, and worked for major, major brands that had factories in South Central Pennsylvania. Um, those factories do not exist today. Uh, but the United States through World War II was incredibly, uh, you know, was, was economically powerful for, um, for producing. Hmm. Um, and then we, then there was this, there's this shift and how, and, uh, and how do we keep that economic activity of, um, of production happening? And uh, a guy named Victor Lebeau, what uh, worked in the um, the federal government, and so he had this plan of turning our nation into and not a nation of um, not a nation of producers, but a nation of consumers. So instead of finding our value in what we um, what we made or what we created, we started to find our value in what we bought and how we showed what we bought. Mm -hmm. um, and these, uh, you know, it was, it was really explicit. Um, Victor Lebeau was a retail <clears throat> analyst and he wrote this in 1955. Uh, he wrote an article in 1955 published in a, a retail journal 
Cashman, uh, so here's, his, here's what he said. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. And we've done that. Um, the post-war retail uh, consumption has, has skyrocketed. Um, it hit its peak in the early 2000s um, when you and I were, uh, you know, young, like or entering our early adult lives. Um, and the culture of, uh, of mall, you know, shopping malls and as shopping as entertainment and shopping as recreation um, just, you know, was, was a product of this uh, very intentional design for the, um, the, the economic activity of our country. Um, and it also was facilitated by, certainly by uh, inexpensive goods from other countries facilitated by um, <clears throat> trade agreements that allowed for those, um, for, for the, the, you know, stuff to be made very far away and to come to the United States for us to buy. So in fact, clothing has decreased in price um, since the 1950s considerably. It's much cheaper to buy clothing today than it's ever been in human history, which can make us feel like we, um, like we have more than we actually do as the prices of some of the things that we really need to live, you know, further down Maslow's hierarchy uh, in terms of like shelter and healthcare have become much more expensive over time, over that same period. Uh, Emily, I, 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 I'm really struck by, as you, to quote the way you put it, expl how explicit that intent is. And I don't, I, I just want to understand a little bit more what was the context, like what problem was this guy trying to solve with that mentality? Okay, so picture Rosie the Riveter. Um, during, yeah. during World War II, the United States was incredibly, was making a lot of stuff. And what were we making? We were making guns and bullets and tanks and ships and airplanes. And there was a need for those, right? Because we were fighting World War II on a massive scale, geographically, and in terms of the number of people and materials involved. And then World War II ended. So what are we, what are we making now? And so we transitioned from a making economy to a service economy to a knowledge economy where it's not at all now how what you can make um but what you uh what you do with your brain that can um you know that drives success in the in the um you know in our, our current economic system um and just the way that auto manufacturing went overseas and now is like strangely kind of coming, not kind of actually coming back to the Southeast. Um, but it's foreign auto manufacturers, right? That build Hyundai plants and Kia plants and things across the Southeast uh, in states that don't have, or, you know, in states that, that make that profitable um, for them to do that. So, uh, you know, so Henry Ford's ideal of every worker on his assembly line being able to afford one of his cars uh, outright is, you know, own it outright is no longer the case. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's embedded in our um, kind, of, kind of how things have shifted economically, but it hasn't real, like it hasn't made us happier, right? So more stuff hasn't made people happier. In fact, we've seen this decline in um, indicators of life satisfaction and happiness um, since this uh, 
since this transition to a consumer economy. Um, so back to what I'm, so back to what I'm trying to teach in this, this course. So first it's understanding this linear system um, with this understanding that nature recycles everything. Humans have created the concept of waste. Uh, mm. Say that again. Say that again. Nature recycles everything. Everything that is no longer needed by one species becomes a source or a fills a need for another species in these dynamic um, interrelationships between species within ecosystems. So a rotting log becomes food for decomposer species. It becomes structure for um, animals to uh, use for shelter. It becomes structure for um, uh, fungal networks to spread their mycelium through and both decompose and also use that space to communicate through the fungal network. Um, everything that dies becomes food or structure for something else, sometimes both. So there is no, um, and, and also everything, and which means that everything endlessly cycles with nature, within nature. Going back to that matter can neither be created nor destroyed, it can only change forms. So, um, so how do we as humans who are a part of nature, um, certainly biologically, I would posit spiritually, um, emotionally, we find uh, we have need for connection to nature. Um, how do we re-embed ourselves in natural systems in a way that... Um, that that uh, basically that you know abides by nature's laws mm. Mm. human beings how did you put it created the concept of waste mm -hmm. that is there's no waste terrifying. in nature yeah say that again there's no waste in nature it's only everything that is no longer needed becomes a, a resource or a um, fills a need for another another part of that ecosystem or um, another species. You could drop the mic with that, with that statement alone that, that really, in, I mean, waste isn't real. It's only real because we. <laughs> Which I'm going to say, yes, waste is a social construct, but it's a real social construct. A, a very, a, a huge problem. Yes. And, and I think recognizing that it is a social construct helps to address it. It's, you know, the, the old adage that one man's trash is another man's treasure, right? So when we start to see value in waste, when we start to see, oh, you know, look, look at what's going in here. We have, um, we have material that can be composted, turned into soil and nutrients um, for plants. That's valuable. When we start to see water in waste, wow, fresh water is incredibly precious. Um, so when we start to see value in nature and, and, and people create businesses based on that, right? Like there, there are lots of folks making, uh, making economically productive work out of other people's trash. And there have been right throughout human history, right? That, you know, there've always been people who, um, who collect scrap metal and who, uh, you know, who resell people's discarded hmm. things and that, that like cycle that value. Um, but when, but the goal with like the whole zero waste movement is to, uh, is to see that value at the disposal section or stage of the economy, as well as understand and back way, way, way up to the extraction and production stage mm -hmm. of that linear 
economy. So for example, how might a, so those are folks asking questions like, how might a laptop be designed knowing that it will be recycled relatively quickly, right? Within five years, how do we design a laptop so that the components are easily disassembled and uh, updated, you know, cleaned, whatever needs to happen to build the new better laptop. Um, but how do we design in such a way that stuff is not designed in order to be, um, it's not designed for one life cycle, but for infinite, mm. infinitely like staying in that, that circular system. I hope that you enjoyed part one with Emily Stutzman. I just think that her her path is is so cool. Like, I mean, the the fact that her birthing and and partaking in the birthing of that of that baby cow, how how that was a spiritual experience, a bona fide, numinous experience, if you will. Um, it, you know, it's things like that 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 stick with me. Even though it's not my story, I love hearing uh, other people's hugely impactful moments because it kind of helps me maybe be more aware of how magic is available every day. You know, like right now I'm looking out the window at a gray, dreary day and I just went for a walk outside. And, it, you know, there's so much joy to be found in a gray, dreary day even. It's lightly raining. It's not lightning. Um, there's joy everywhere. And I, I think, again, that's one of the great benefits of listening to other people's lives. And, and where they find joy is it helps me even better understand where I find joy. So I can't wait for you to hear the next episode that will be out next Thursday with Emily Stutzman on how to really implement more sustainability into your life. And again, if this is not something that you've thought about or done a whole lot, we're very uh, delicate about the fact that, that this topic can feel intimidating, and yet she makes it very joyful, I believe. This is somebody that teaches this stuff uh, every semester that she's, you know, at Lipscomb. So I look forward to that. If you are interested in the topics that Emily spoke of in this episode and you want to reach out to her, she can be emailed at eastutzman at lipscomb.edu. That is E-A-S-T-U-T-Z-M-A-N at lipscomb.edu. If you are enjoying listening to this podcast, please go to Apple iTunes, subscribe, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, and if you really want to be the most generous, write a review. There's been a couple more reviews in the last week. Thank you so much for those folks that have done it. Not only is it wonderful to read the comments and what folks are liking, but this is a huge impact to help other folks find Epic Ordinary Lives. So thank you, and if you have enjoyed a particular episode, then please share it with a family member or a friend. So until next Thursday, wherever you are, take care of yourself. See you next week.